any one of us, Lord, but it's always about you, Jesus, and what you're doing through us, demonstrating your love and your kindness as you pour out your gifts. So Jesus, thank you for what you are doing in Dakota in his life, how you've gifted him, how you delight in using him, Lord. And so I pray, Jesus, as he's preaching here this morning, he would feel a deep enjoyment of communicating your word. And Lord, you empower him for that as well. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Caleb. Absolutely. Morning, guys. Well, uh, growing up, me and my family, we were con- constantly on the move. Uh, we were always in the car um, driving to either our baseball games or um, going on family trips or even hanging along with my parents while they would run errands. Essentially, wherever they would go, <laughs> we would go with them. And no matter the distance or how long the drive was, I always enjoyed uh, going on these drives because TV uh, screen on the ceiling of the car of the van. Hello. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, we would. I would love watching uh, movies on the portable screen uh, that would come on the on the uh, TV or on the on the ceiling of the car. I made the trips a lot quicker, to be honest with y'all. Um, but I loved also watching cartoons on these drives. And one of these cartoons that um, I remember very uh, vividly growing up is Tom and Jerry. Um, and I love the cartoon uh, Tom and Jerry, and specifically this one episode is Tom going to heaven. Um, Tom going to heaven. And in this episode, Tom wakes up and his, uh, his, he's in his soul, and he's looking at his body, and, he's, and then he's uh, confronted with this golden escalator, and he gets on this escalator, and as you can see, it's taking him above to the clouds. And once he gets above the clouds, he's in heaven, and is c- characterized as pure white and pure gold. And he sees this heavenly express train that he's trying to get onto. And that's basically the premise of the, of the episode. And when I was in uh, elementary school, uh, someone asked me, Dakota, uh, where, where is heaven? Where, where is heaven? And I, I responded and I said, well, uh, there's a, a once, once you uh, pass away, you're going to be confronted uh, with your soul. And there's going to be a golden escalator right in front of you. And you're going to get on that golden escalator. And it's going to take you all the way to heaven. And then once you get into heaven, uh, there will be a train. And you just got to get on that train. And it will take you to Jesus. <laughs> and this guy just started laughing. He laughed so hard. And, and then he said, well, how am I supposed to catch a train in heaven when I'll be stuck on the escalator for eternity? And uh, I, I did not think about that. <laughs> and, and although I was young, and I acknowledged that heaven won't have a heavenly transportation dilemma. What astonishes me, what astonishes me is how pop culture influences our perspective regardless of its biblical accuracy. And this holds true for heaven in general as Pastor Caleb talked about it last week, but more specifically for this week, for this week, the portrayal of where heaven is, where heaven is located. See, regardless of your age, we all at one point have been influenced by pop culture of where heaven is, where heaven is located. 
and curious to see what current pop culture says, I went on Google and I typed in, where is heaven? And so I typed that up, I clicked submit, and then I went to Google Images. And this is the image that I found. It's a staircase, it was the first image, it was a staircase, kind of golden, and it's going to the clouds. And it's very kind of sort of similar to where Tom and Jerry's portrayal was. And then I also, I consulted uh, ChatGPT, which is an AI that compiles all the internet information and it spits out a, an AI-generated response. So I typed in on ChatGPT, where is heaven? And its answer was this. Heaven is often described as a realm beyond the physical universe where God dwells and is not typically associated with a specific location on earth. Now, this is very misleading. So this morning, we were going to be diving into three misconceptions or three uh, myths and looking into what biblical truths that God wants us to hold fast to. So where is heaven located? This is the first myth. Myth number one, heaven is in the sky. But the truth, God's plan has always, always been to join heaven and earth. What's more amazing is that the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. See, in the beginning, the Garden of Eden was heaven and earth completely overlapping. It was overlapping. It was a place where God and humanity dwelled perfectly together. There's no separation, and humanity is in perfect harmony with God and building a flourishing and beautiful world. However, Adam and Eve fell. And sin entered into the world. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees and the gardens. Heaven and earth are now separate. However, God still wants to dwell with his creation. And I thank God for this. And so the way this happens is through temples. And the, there's two types, but the first one is the tabernacle. And God gives specific instructions to Moses, uh, to the Israelites. And this is when they were very nomadic. And so it was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is more of a, a, a portable tent. And it resembled um, uh, the Garden of Eden. And the second temple uh, is the temple within itself. Once the Israelites were in the promised land, they no longer were very nomadic. So they had a building, a temple in Jerusalem. And like I said, these are specific, specific designs and full of intentionality. These temples were decorated with trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels. And it all resembled the Garden of Eden. And at the very center of the temple was called the place called the Holies of Holies. And this is where God dwelled, his presence. However, due to sin entering into the world, there is a cost for one to enter into the presence of God. For God is holy and we are not. And this is why the Israelites did animal sacrificing. Blood is shed in your place. And remember in Genesis, God clothed Adam and Eve, thus requiring the death of an animal to cover their nakedness. In the same way, animal sacrificing are done to atone for sin. And this leads us to Jesus. In John, it says that God became human, but God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. 
And what this literally means is Jesus tabernacled among us. And this is beautiful, beautiful wording. And what John is basically saying is that Jesus is the temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth are overlapping. Jesus isn't saying, staying in the temple where there is no sin, but he's running around, coming to sinners and hanging out with sinners. Jesus is bringing heaven back to earth, but he's doing it out in the world, not confined in the temple. And he can do this because Jesus is the temple. Jesus Christ became the new earthly temple of God. I like, it, I like what Paul says in, in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And this is why Jesus tells everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. He even encouraged people to pray regularly that God's kingdom comes and that his will be done on earth as is, is in heaven. And not only is Jesus literally the temple, he is tabernacling, tabernacling among us, but Jesus, it says, as John the Baptist says, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sins of the world. Jesus is the temple and the sacrifice. And the cross absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited to animal sacrifice. And he is the final sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading around the world to people who have faith in him. And as believers in Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we are the temple of God, which means that we as Christians, believers, you and I and Jesus Christ, who are joined together in one family as the church, as King's Cross, is a holy dwelling place of God's presence. And I think this is so cool. Now, Jesus says that when we die, we will be with him in paradise. Now, this is true, but this isn't the final point. The whole focus of the Bible story is how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, he puts it very, very uh, well. I love this. He says this, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. See, if God were to end history and reign forever in a distant heaven, earth would be remembered as a graveyard of sin and failure. Instead, the earth will be redeemed and resurrected. So where is heaven? Heaven is coming to earth. I love this quote by Randy Alcorn. He says this, just As Adam was made from the dust of the earth, we will be remade from the dust to which we return at death. In other words, God's people are not looking for deliverance from the earth, but deliverance on earth. And this is where we find our hope. Our hope is in the restoration of creation, a new heaven and a new 
earth. See, God's plan has always been, always been to bring together heaven and earth. His goal isn't to wipe everything out and start from scratch, start from zero. There is no Genesis 2.0. No, but to restore everything. He chose a man named Noah and restored. He chose Jesus and restored. And I want to share the story from Randy Alcorn's book, and I'm using a lot of his quotes throughout this morning because I love his book on heaven. And he, I, I want to, he beautifully illustrates this idea. See, on May 18th, uh, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted, causing significant devastation to one of the most beautiful mountains and its surroundings. People had to wear masks for weeks around the local area, even up to 100 miles for two weeks because the volcanic ash was falling from the sky. And experts predicted, predicted it would take at least a decade, maybe even a century for the area to recover. But to everyone's surprise, signs of restoration began appearing with just a few years. And look at it now. Look at it now. After roughly 40 years, it demonstrates the healing properties that God has woven into his creation, even under the effects of the curse. In Randy's words, he says this, after witnessing such a complete devastation, I have no trouble imagining God transforming a scorched earth into a new one, fresh and vibrant. See, heaven is not an escape from earth. It's a rescue on earth, where God's plan unfolds by connecting the heavenly and earthly realms. See, when Mount St. Helens erupted, it seems like a destruction, but the first law of thermodynamics tells us that the matter and energy involved, they don't disappear, but rather they are transformed. And similarly, after the eruption, the landscape began to restore itself. And this aligns with the concept of resurrection. Just as a new house can be built after a fire, the land around Mount St. Helens showed signs of renewal. See, in this case, the volcanic eruption was a temporary and partial destruction. But ongoing restoration and regrowth mirrored a process more like renewal than complete obliteration. Destruction will give way to a complete perfection. And this is what will happen to the earth. The, this earth will be renewed to new life just as our bodies, just as our bodies will experience a resurrection to new life. And this brings us to our second misconception we'll address today. So myth, myth number two, our heavenly bodies will lack material substance. But the truth, our bodies in heaven will indeed be material. See, when a follower of Christ passes away, they enter directly into the presence of Christ. And theologians refer to the state as intermediate heaven or present heaven. Yet it's crucial to note that this immediate heaven is not the ultimate destination. Just as earth will be experiencing a resurrection to new life, so too will our bodies transform to a new and tangible existence. See, in other words, intermediate heaven is not the final place because our physical bodies are still dead. Our bodies have not been raised. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49, where he responds to the question about the nature of our resurrected 
bodies. He implores that the metaphor of planting a seed to illustrate that their bodies sown into death is perishable, dishonorable, and weak. But it is raised imperishable in glory and in power, a spiritual body. What Paul is saying here is that those who have borne the image of the earthly man Adam, you and I, will also bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ. This passage underscores the continuity between our present physical existence and the future resurrection, assuring believers that the transformation involves a real and tangible and spiritual existence in the heavenly realms. Remember Jesus' resurrected body. And Jesus, where he, is, he invites his disciples to touch and to see his physical body. He even eats in their presence to demonstrate the materiality of his resurrected form, dispelling any notion of a mere spiritual or ghostly existence. And this serves as a tangible example supporting the concept that our future bodies, our future bodies will be both real and spiritual, mirroring the transformed body of Christ after his resurrection. I like this quote as well. The fact that Jesus picked up his, uh, his relationship where he left off is a foretaste of our own lives after we are resurrected. We will experience continuity between our current lives and our resurrected lives with the same memories and relational histories. And this is where, again, we get our hope. Our hope is in the resurrection of our bodies. See, when the Bible talks about heaven and earth, it's referring to everything in the universe. Again, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, mentions a new heaven and a new earth, indicating a transformation that is more than just something new or novel. It suggests a profound and significant change. It's not just a surface-level update. It's not just a new iOS update per year. It's completely new. It's transformative. See, in other words, the resurrected bodies are not intended just to float in space or play leapfrog on the clouds <laughs> as we float. Like, no, they call for a new earth on which to live and to work glorifying God. See, in other words, the doctrine of the resurrected of, the bo- of our bodies, in fact, makes no sense whatsoever apart from the doctrine of the new earth. See, John Piper, he makes this point, and he furthers this by saying this. What happens to our bodies and what happens to creation go together. And what happens to our bodies is not annihilation, but redemption. Our bodies will be redeemed and restored, made new, not thrown away. And so it is with the heavens and the earth. See, our hope is intricately woven into the restoration of creation and the resurrection of our bodies, affirming God's grand plan to reunite heaven and earth. You will have a new material body to live and a renewed material creation. And that is an amen. And the last myth I want to talk with all this morning is, is this. Because I am not there yet, it doesn't affect me today. But the truth 
Christians are called to action, given the shortness of the time before Jesus returns. In other words, renewal has already begun, and we're invited to participate participate in it. See, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. And do this understanding the present time, right now. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desire of flesh. Even Jesus speaks of this when telling the parable of the thief and the night, night in Matthew. He says this, Jesus, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at the time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect it. What both of these passages are getting at is this. Both passages stress the need for believers to live in a manner that aligns with their faith consistently. The intimate return of Jesus is not meant to be distance or an abstract concept, but rather a present reality that should influence how Christians conduct themselves. The myth that it doesn't affect us today is dispelled. And the correction, the truth, calls believers to live with a sense of purpose, actively seeking to follow Jesus' teachings, prepare for his return. In the beginning of Acts chapter 1, it talks about how Jesus uh, ascended to the right hand of God in heaven, in present heaven. And uh, I love the translation that it, uh, that it uses. It says the disciples were staring at the sky intently. Intently they were staring at the sky. And I don't blame them. I would be looking at the sky intently as well. And then two angels come. And they say, why are you looking at the sky? Why are you looking? Don't you know the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him, seen him go into heaven? So in other words, why are you standing there? Go, make disciples, baptize in the, in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Renewal is here, and renewal is now. Renewal has already begun, so participate in it. Don't just stand here and look at the sky. Go, go. It's our ultimate hope. It's our ultimate hope in the return of Jesus Christ. That's our third point, is our ultimate hope is the return of Jesus Christ. See, this gives us hope that we will see our loved ones who have died under the blood of Christ. This gives us that the struggles and pain we face in the world are temporary and the glorious eternity awaits us in the presence of our Savior. The return of Jesus is not merely a theological 
concept, but a source of profound comfort and assurance for believers. See, this hope serves as a guiding light in our daily lives, knowing that ultimate, our ultimate destiny is with Jesus Christ. And this encourages us to preserve through trials, to love unconditionally, and live with a purpose. This anticipation of Christ's return shapes our priorities and redirects our focus from the transient pleasures of this world to eternal joy and promise by our faith in him. And you wonder why people who are addicted to drugs are no longer. You wonder why the limb can walk. You wonder why the blind can see. Transformation happens through Jesus Christ when you put his faith in him. It changes everything. We are, as we eagerly await the fulfillment of this hope, it also instills us in a sense of accountability. The awareness that Jesus could return at any moment prompts us to live with integrity, compassion, and a commitment to righteousness. It challenged us to be faithful stewards of the time and resources entrusted to us, recognizing that our actions today have eternal implications. And while we are waiting for Christ's return, we can ultimately be a witness, a witness as he is making all things new right now through his son, Jesus Christ. For the same word new and the new heavens and new earth is the same new in Greek when Paul speaks of believers becoming a new creation. If anything, this gives us hope that Jesus has the power to still make a new creation out of you and me, out of our messes. You may feel like your life erupted like Mount St. Helens. Everything around you is absolutely destroyed. But in the hands of Jesus, everything around you, everything around you is made new. Everything around you is made whole. This hope is not passive. It's a call to actively participate in the redemptive work that Christ is accomplishing, bringing healing and renewal to every corner of our existence. I want to leave us with this quote. Um, Again, it's from Randy Alcorn. um, And it just sums up everything so perfectly. He says this, According to the scripture, the present world will neither continue forever nor will it be destroyed and replaced by a totally new one. Instead, it will be cleansed of sin and recreated, reborn, renewed, and made whole. While the kingdom of God is first planted spiritually in human hearts, the future blessedness is not in the spiritualized. Biblical hope, rooted in incarnation and resurrection, is not to be... Is creation, yeah. This world, visible, physical, and bodily hope. The rebirth of human beings is completed and the glorious rebirth of all creation. The new Jerusalem, whose architect and builder is God himself. And that's an amen. So I want to just invite uh, the, the uh, band back up. And I want to ask we can just bow our heads um, and we can pray together as a body.